Join the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy and best-selling authors, including Cheryl Strayed, Stephen Rowley, and Rebecca Yaros, on October 11th for the National Celebration of Reading in Washington, D.C. Learn more at barbarabushevents.org slash ncor2023. Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. I'm Christopher Bea, the editor of Harper's Magazine. In this week's episode, I am speaking to Amir Akhmadi Aryan, a novelist and essayist whose report, Waiting for the Lights, The Life of an Iranian Exile, appears in the September issue of the magazine. Welcome, Amir. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. We're going to be discussing um, your report in the September issue of the magazine, Waiting for the Lights, The Life of an Iranian Exile. This piece is about a lot of things, um, but first and foremost about one man, Hamed Esmailian. And um, I thought maybe we could start by you could tell us a little bit about him and maybe start by saying who this man was as of January 2020 or, you know, January 7th, 2020, before uh, Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 took off. Yeah, so Hamid uh, was a writer and dentist in Iran. He was born in 1977 in a, a city called Kermanshah, it's a western city near the Iraqi border, uh, which has a, a you know, a, predominantly Kurdish population. And he grew up in, in, in that area. And because of its proximity to the Iraqi border, it, it fell in, into the war zone, basically, during the Iran-Iraq war. So this was a city that got, uh, you know, uh, pummeled pretty hard uh, by the Iraqi army from, from the sky and, and, and the ground. And uh, so that's, uh, and, and I'm from the same generation, grew up in the same area in Iran, a couple of hundred miles south of Kermanshah in an area which was even deeper into the war zone. So uh, our childhood uh, has a lot of, you know, similarities and we have a lot in common as kids. Now that's a war, uh, the Iran-Iraq war, uh, which is a kind of a uh, mostly forgotten conflict in the region, partly because there are just so many conflicts in the Middle East all the time that uh, it's easy to forget uh, individual one. Uh, but this was a, a particularly significant one. Uh, you know, for one thing, it went on for eight years with no interruption, and that qualifies for the longest uh, uninterrupted war in the 20th century, longer than Second World War and really any other. As far as I know, I read it somewhere. And also, uh, this was the war that basically formed the Middle East uh, as we know it today. Um, but And also, you know, kind of uh, a whole generation, maybe multiple generations of uh, Iranians, you know, the, the post-revolutionary Iran, the Iran after 79, uh, would have been a very different place uh, if that war hadn't happened. And so our characters, the, you know, our our generation, people like Hamid and myself, uh, I think it's fair to say that we were formed uh, by that war. You know, that, that war uh, kind of, you know, molded us into uh, who we are now. And all those traumas and, you know, kind of pains, 
and the losses that we experienced in the war zone. We would carry them throughout our lives to this to this day. Uh, so uh, Hamid grew up in that environment. Uh, then for college, he moved to Tabriz, which is a city in Azerbaijan, the Iranian Azerbaijan. Uh, it's the biggest city out there, the capital of the eastern uh, Azerbaijan. So he, he studied uh, to, to become a dentist at the University of Tabriz. And there he um, met his future wife, uh, Parisal. Uh, they got married soon. Uh, you know, they're pretty young in their early 20s, but they got married. And then they moved around for work. Um, you know, both of them were dentists, so they had, you know, all kinds of jobs. Like the way doctors do, they go to kind of small towns and more uh, remote areas, uh, building up their career until they, you know, they, they can uh, afford uh, starting a practice in a big city. So they did that. They moved around the country and uh, worked as uh, doctors, as dentists, and eventually ended up in Tehran. Uh, in the 90s, uh, sorry, in the early 2000s. Um, so, uh, but along the way, you know, Hamid, uh, while, uh, you know, being trained as a doctor and practicing as a doctor, he stayed a, a dedicated reader and writer as well, and then a pretty prolific one. So he, you know, wrote a bunch of short stories, uh, which uh, he brought them together in a collection uh, that came out in 2009 and went on to write his first novel, which came out as his second novel for censorship uh, issues. And then, you know, he wrote another novel called Dr. Datis, uh, based on his experience as a dentist in Iran and all of that. So, uh, but this uh, came out later. Uh, Iran. If I can just jump in quickly, yeah. I, I just, just asked because you mentioned that one of the novels was delayed because of censorship. Yeah. And I believe one of the stories from the original yeah, yeah. collection was 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 cut. Right. You you know are yourself obviously a writer and and were uh, in the Tehrani um, uh, literary community at this time. Um, in America, we 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 think of the post revolutionary regime as quite repressive, um, and I wonder maybe just talk a little bit about the experience of being a writer based in Iran at this time that you're discussing? So uh, this is, uh, we were talking about like the late 90s, 2000s, all, all the way to 2009, which is the time uh, Hamid, after the publication of his first book, left Iran for Canada uh, with his uh, wife and the, their baby, then uh, a six months old uh, daughter back then. Uh, it went uh, up and down a little bit. So uh, when the reformists uh, took power, you know, the censorship eased a little bit, just really slightly, not, not a significant change. And when the so-called hardliners came into power, it, it grew more strict. But uh, it was, uh, you know, really like the first thing on your mind as a writer when you were, you know, when you would go to the page uh, before thinking about how, how you develop your characters or, you know, how you structure the story or what are the themes you want to focus on or, or expand in, in your work. Uh, the first thing you had to uh, consider was that whether uh, this book I'm writing, this story I'm, I'm writing will, will survive, uh, you know, the censorship office. So in that regard, it, it's, a, it's a basically an impossible task, you know, to, uh, to put in front of a writer uh, to write, uh, you know, basically under uh, like a hanging sword of the censorship office. 
So uh, if you go, uh, you know, to Iran and go to a party where writers uh, get together and listen to our to their conversations, the number one issue most of the times that you hear uh, being discussed is censorship. You know, uh, not just about uh, you know complaining about how it's ruining their craft and you know uh, th their career and how irritating it is to to deal with it. Uh, but also their, their anecdotes about going to the censorship office, dealing with those censors. It's a very Kafkaesque, absurd experience uh, most of the times. <clears throat> You've got to go negotiate over, you know, whether these two characters uh, can kiss each other on the page or not. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a really, it's a ridiculous process and uh, really stifling uh, for, for writers. It's basically impossible to survive as a novelist in Iran today. It has been the case over the last 30 years. I, I think it's, it's kind of a miracle that we still have a literature, you know, literary culture uh, going on there, uh, given the circumstances. So uh, Ahmed, like many of us, had to deal with that. Uh, in Iran, uh, you know, uh, the first book, as you mentioned, his first, uh, you know, a collection of stories, one of the stories was, uh, you know, uh, censored. So uh, the other six came out. Then his novel, uh, which is a political novel, uh, you know, uh, and it mainly, the, the main problem with that was that it has a character from the Mujahideen group, Mujahideen Khal group, you know, which is like a taboo uh, in the, you know, in the, in the Iranian politics, even mentioning them as anything other than evil, let alone, you know, uh, like creating one of uh, a character from that group as a, like a normal human being. So yeah, he, uh, they'll had to deal with all of that. But in 2009, shortly before the green movement uh, came about and then got crushed, Ahmed and his family migrated to Canada and he has uh, lived there ever since. But so for the next, you know, decade or so, he continued to be a um, a practicing dentist and uh, and writer in Canada. You mentioned that he kept up um, a blog, basically mm -hmm. about the um, expatriate experience that was followed by a lot of people. He had experiences of attempting to. Uh, return home for family occasions to to Iran and um, getting detained briefly, having his passport held up, um, all of which led to his decision, if we fast forward now to January of 2020, not to join um, his the rest of his family, his wife and, and daughter, um, on, a, on a trip back for a... That's right. Yeah, so we are now January 2020. Uh, so uh, the way it happens is that uh, the last time uh, they go, he goes to Iran. Uh, it's for uh, his, uh, you know, they, they they get the news that that his father-in-law, Harissa's father, was very ill. Uh, so they travel uh, back there to be with him, you know, in hospital and take care of him. But in the airport, uh, in the Khomeini airport in Tehran, his passport is confiscated. And they ask him to come to some kind of a government, you know, office uh, and, and, and in Tehran downtown uh, to, you know, as they, as they say, uh, to just answer some questions. Those uh, sessions of answering some questions are usually, uh, you know, I sat through one of them. They're very, very long, uh, maybe, you know, three, four, five hours at times. 
and for most people, uh, multiple sessions. So you sit across the table from an interrogator who wants to know literally everything about your life, from the moment you're born to the moment you're sitting uh, you know, with them there, everything you've done, uh, the places you've gone, uh, people you know, you know uh, the people in, in your family, uh, you know uh, what you do uh, as work and you, uh, as you know in your leisure time they really want uh, they want you uh, to tell them pretty much the, all the details of your personal life and also you know in during that process at least that, that was my experience they also come back with information about your life that will surprise you so the uh, you know the whole process is basically uh, to intimidate you and you know uh, to show you that they know about you more than uh, you would think, and they can actually use it against you, you know, if if it comes to that. Uh, so he sat through a couple of uh, those sessions and and those interrogation, uh, th those interrogations, and because of that, because he had to spend so much time uh, in that office, he actually didn't get to be with uh, his family. His wife and father-in-law was in hospital. And uh, he was, uh, you know, being interrogated when his father-in-law passed away. So after that experience, when, you know, in 2020, uh, they received the news that Parisa's sister uh, was going to be married, he decided not to attend uh, the wedding because, you know, uh, fearing that similar thing uh, might happen that would kind of spoil the whole ceremony. So he stayed back in Canada, and his family uh, traveled to Iran. Uh, no, I, I think on Christmas uh, 2019, uh, yeah, in, in late December 2019, they went to Iran, uh, and they were there, you know, in early January, which is the date we're going to discuss now. Yeah. So you know, you give us some of the 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 larger background of what was happening in particular between U.S.-Iranian relationships at the time that this flight takes off. Maybe we can briefly get to, uh, through that. But ultimately, the, the, the important thing is that Ismailian's family is on a flight that takes off from the airport in Tehran, turning to Canada on January 8th, which is Ukraine International Flight 752. Yeah, so uh, while Ismailian's family are in Sari, which is a uh, city north of Iran for, for the wedding, uh, you know, the tension between the U.S. and Iran kind of increase, which is not news to anyone. Every couple of years we have uh, headlines about uh, things getting tense between these two countries over the last 45 years. Uh, but that's one, that one wasn't a particularly bad episode. For a variety of reasons, partly because you know Trump was in office in the U.S., uh, so it all began with a group of uh, Shia militia uh, supported by the Iranian government in Iraq storming the U.S. embassy in the Green Zone uh, in Baghdad, and uh, you know, kind of really walking into the uh, this highly protected area and uh, ransacking uh, the embassy and you know, just throwing things around in, in the lobby. Um, and writing graffiti on the walls, uh, you know, one of them uh, a reference to Hassan Soleimani, the, the Iranian general, the commander of the Hoots force, who ran the, you know, uh, 
the, the, the military operations of the uh, Revolutionary Guards abroad. So when that happened in the U.S., uh, Trump was watching this uh, episode on, on TV, got extremely angry. And then he called on, you know, people from Pentagon and, you know, his uh, cabinet members, uh, Pence and uh, Pompeo and, and, and others uh, for a meeting. And there they discussed, uh, you know, uh, retaliation options. They gave him like a range of options from mild to extreme, you know, being, uh, I don't know, attacking the ships and uh, Iranian ships in Persian Gulf or a couple of other things. As the most, the most extreme and dangerous option they put in front of him was the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. And that's what he chose. Uh, you know, uh, to uh, like the astonishment of uh, the Pentagon people, uh, he decided to kill Soleimani, who was a very high profile, you know, military figure, not just in Iran, but in the region, in, in the Shia, you know, uh, countries and, and, and areas in the region, wherever Iran had an influence. Uh, Soleimani was a very important presence. He had a lot of followers and fans uh, in the region. So it was extremely risky. It could uh, pose a serious danger to like the U.S. embassies in in Lebanon and Iraq and other places. Among just to mention one of the risks involved in that operation, but he went for it, and uh, so they had intelligence that uh, Soleimani was traveling to Baghdad uh, in, in the early uh, days of the 2020, and uh, when he got off the plane in Baghdad airport. Uh, on the tarmac, uh, a, a two cars uh, picked picked him up, and and his uh, you know company uh, as, as they were driving uh, through Baghdad, a, a drone, an American uh, drone, uh, shot uh, two missiles and really blew up uh, the cars on the tarmac. Really blew them into smithereens. Uh, very uh, you know just small uh, shreds and shards of the car, and and the bodies uh, were left on the ground. Um, so as Soleimani was killed like that, and as you can imagine, as anyone who knows anything about uh, Iran to, uh, at the time uh, would know, it it was the most provocative uh, action that the, U, the U.S. could take against Iran. So then, uh, you know, the government in Iran really went a little crazy, to be honest. Part of it was the... Uh, all this like talk of retaliation, really kind of grand claims that, that, that about the things they would do, uh, you know, to revenge. And part of it was uh, this large, you know, uh, ceremonies and uh, events to celebrate his memory. You know, if you if you went to Tehran at the time, all the walls and you know, basically overnight, wherever you turned, there was like a place of Soleimani on a wall or a billboard uh, somewhere. So uh, the government in Iran was really up in arms about that. And eventually they did uh, take action. They shot a bunch of missiles, uh, you know, uh, across the border to an American base near Erbil. Uh, but I, I, it's still a little vague, uh, you know, how uh, the, the whole thing turned out. But it turns out, uh, but, but it appears that uh, before they launched those missiles, uh, they leaked the info uh, so that the Americans knew uh, which base uh, they were be that they had targeted. So the military personnel were not there, right? So the, the missiles hit the base and, and destroyed uh, significant parts of it, but no one got killed. Then Trump uh, took to Twitter uh, threatening that 
in retaliation, if Iran kept talking badly about the U.S., quote unquote, then the U.S. would destroy 52, you know, uh, spots in Iran, which are of like cultural and military value. This is a really strange language he used in his tweets. Just, uh, that all, that's also n nobody's surprise. Um, then uh, around that time, so this is uh, the height of the tension. This is where uh, the point that the tension between the, these two countries uh, really uh, picked. And uh, everybody in Iran was uh, awaiting a war. You know, they thought that the military conflict is inevitable now. They thought like the writing was on the wall. Um, and so as all this stuff is unfolding, uh, Parisa and their daughter, Rira, uh, they travel down to Tehran to take the flight out of the Khomeini airport to the Ukraine and from there to back to Toronto. So they and, and then Hamid is on this side of the uh, the world in, in Toronto, you know, and not just him. I mean, there were like more than uh, there were 176 passengers on that flight. Most of them had families abroad, you know, in in Europe and Canada. And they were all extremely anxious and worried about their families, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, concerned about what, what, what might happen to that flight. So uh, he, uh, you know, tries to call his wife and, uh, you know, uh, kind of convince her not to get on board, but she can't reach her. So, uh, so sorry, he can't reach her. But then he calls uh, his mother-in-law and tries to, you know, get her to call her daughter and ask her not to get on board. She, you know, tell, tells him that uh, things are safe inside and it, it, it's not as bad as it looks, so he, he shouldn't worry, they'll be fine. So the, uh, the, the flight takes off from the airport and a couple of minutes after the takeoff, it's hit by, by two missiles, by two ground air missiles, and it explodes in the air. And there are videos on YouTube, pretty kind of terrifying. Uh, you can see that the moment the, you know this uh, this missile uh, hit the plane, it's a very uh, almost blindingly bright uh, kind of ball of light emerging in the air, and then you know kind of dancing around all the way down to the ground and exploding in a soccer field uh, near the airport. So this is how Parisa and, and Rira, uh, and uh, along with more than 170 other passengers on that flight, are killed. And this is this is then also um, Ismailian's uh, first transition from being an expatriate dentist and literary writer to being a kind of uh, political figure as as he joins together with a lot of surviving family members to. Uh, with a very, at this point, quite narrow goal, right, which is that they just, they want the Iranian regime to explain what happened and to come clean on on, on how this flight was taken. Well, there there is a three day gap uh, between that decision and the and this tragedy, because really nobody believed that uh, you know Iran, no matter uh, whatever uh, you think about that government. Uh, they would shot down, uh, you know, a passenger uh, airliner in 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 the sky of Tehran, not far from the city. 
and kill all those passengers uh, on board, even by mistake, you know, because in, in that situation, mistake doesn't really make a lot of sense. So nobody really believed that, uh, despite everything we have seen that government doing over the uh, you know, last 45 years, it was just you know, beyond comprehension that, that anything like this might happen. So I myself didn't believe it. I'm sure, you know, uh, Ahmed himself uh, over the first couple of days didn't believe it. And then uh, the government and the state media vehemently denied uh, that it, you know, they, they shot down the plane. They, you know, they, they blamed it on technical failure um, and uh, attributed all this uh, news and stories about, uh, you know, uh, the, the attack on the uh, plane to I don't know Western media or the, the one one storyline was that this is all Boeing company uh, they're afraid of uh, their uh, stock falling uh, you know in the market so they are propagating all these narratives so uh, they had like a kind of a media war for a couple of days before they come clean and the only reason they did come clean I believe is that. Uh, there were, uh, you know, satellite uh, footages and, and intelligence, undeniable evidence, uh, which the Canadian government uh, obtained, I don't know from where, and Justin Trudeau, you know, gave a press conference uh, saying, uh, you know, in, in no uncertain terms that it was shut down, right? So uh, they uh, confessed uh, to the attack only after it became impossible to deny it. And then when that happened, you know, you just uh, just put yourself in his shoes, right? Your father, uh, who left the country, mainly escaping them, escaping those very people, you know, who kind of didn't let you uh, have a career as a writer. J just one aspect of it, your daily life, you know, all in all kinds of ways, is restricted. Everything is on on your nerves, you know, the, the corruption, politics, and so on. So you make this decision, pretty dramatic decision to take your family a couple of oceans and continents away to Canada, to, you know, to a land that you have no connection to, um, and start a life there from scratch in your 30s, you know, got to uh, pass that test, uh, you know, to become a dentist there for, for that. They had to study for a couple of years, pretty much around the clock. Uh, you know, while uh, working, you know, to make ends meet, you know, raising a child uh, in, a, in an environment where you don't have no one, no family, no connections. So you go through all of these difficulties, all of this trouble to just have an ordinary life, to be able to live like, you know, pretty much any other uh, kind of average citizen in the world. And also your, your child would kind of grow up in an environment where she doesn't have to wear her job or doesn't have to, you know, go through all those indoctrinations in, in the school, so on and so forth. So you uh, undergo all of that. Then one day your family goes back home and they didn't uh, go back that often, maybe every, every few years. They traveled back home to attend the wedding. And then on the way back, while they're in the sky, a missile takes down the flight, right? They just explodes the, 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 you know, the, the, air, the airplane in the air. And, you, you know, just imagine uh, anyone who was a parent, yeah, I'm sure just, you know, imagining that they will have a shutter uh, running down their spine, you know, just thinking of how your child and, uh, and spouse are just burning in the sky as the plane is uh, going down to the ground. 
So it's not after that. It's not like uh, it's not as if you have an option. I don't know if you're not if you don't uh, dedicate your life the, the rest of your life to finding out what happened and who are the people uh, responsible behind it, who are the perpetrators, and bring them to justice. Uh, I don't think anything else is left for him or for many of those families who were affected by that uh, tragedy. So yeah, uh, I think it's uh, not so much a decision that he made uh, to pursue justice and uh, you know to find out what happened, uh, then uh, it's just an inevitable you know turn of events. There's uh, nothing else left to do uh, you know if you're in, in, in that situation. So I want to I want to jump ahead a bit. I you know obviously um, I encourage all of our listeners to to read this wonderful piece and there, there's a lot more about the work he did then. But a big part of the story is simply that in in doing that work he attained a great deal of moral authority among. Uh, Iranians living outside of the country who, you know, as you say, include all ranges of people in terms of their political backgrounds, their desires for the country, people who are incredibly liberal or leftist, people who are supporters of the pre-revolutionary regime, who, um, you know, there's a whole, whole range of people who don't always agree with each other, but, but, but he's got a real moral authority with, with, with all sorts of people. And then um, uh, that, that, that's sort of the, the role that he plays within the community um, as of two years later when we have, you know, a, an event that most of our listeners you know, it will still still be familiar to them, but a young woman, Masa Amini, was picked up in a Tehran metro station for wearing an improper head covering and died in police custody and, and, and appears to have been severely uh, beaten to death effectively by the officers. And this eventually led to um, enormous protests within the country and also to a very large movement. I think it's fair to call, uh, call one of the most serious challenges to, to, to the regime and, uh, since the revolution. Yeah, I think it's fair to characterize that. Yeah, so uh, the, the thing that happened after uh, they took down, uh, uh, they, they shot down the plane was that the families got together and started something that uh, came to be known as the association, the association of the families. And initially, they started off, uh, you know, uh, focusing on uh, the story of the the flight. Right? They wanted, uh, you know, kind of the, they approached international organizations and you know human rights institutes and all of that, trying to bring people involved in justice. You know, they launched a, a media campaign. They went on air. Uh, in the uh, Persian-speaking media abroad, but also you know the Canadian media and even uh, the Ukrainian media uh, at some point. So that's uh, what their focus was. Uh, it was, I mean, it is uh, by you know by default a political organization, that association. But their primary goal was not political in the sense of you know trying to like uh, fight the regime head on. But uh, as things uh, developed, I, I think it's important to note is that the Iranian diaspora is very large and it's just full of political dissidents. You know, there's just no shortage of uh, you know, discontent and anger towards the, 
towards that regime and you know there are like millions of people around the world really thinking day, day and night about how to bring that regime down but it's extremely disorganized you know there is uh, there's never really been an effective organized uh campaign or, or movement or anything like that uh, outside Iran in, 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 in decades, really. So this association uh, was very well organized, actually. Uh, and, you know, they, uh, they, they took uh, very careful steps. Every, everything they did was based on, uh, you know, a kind of what was pre-planned and uh, thought through. And so they, you know, they took all of these steps. And over time, even though their goal was not that, uh, in, in the beginning, but they became a major political force uh, outside Iran. So when uh, uh, the events of uh, September 2022 uh, took place, as you mentioned, the killing of Masa Amini, and uh, you know there was this kind of hunger for any kind of uh, organization outside Iran, any figure, any you know uh, anything, anyone that could bring people together and organize a protest, uh, when that, uh, you know, need became so urgent, uh, the association, which had three years of disciplined uh, organization experience, they stepped in and really kind of spearheaded uh, this movement uh, outside, outside Iran. And, you know, Hamid became like their face, uh, their spokesperson, and uh, his popularity grew really astronomically, pretty much overnight. You know, from mid-September to the end of September. You know, within within a couple of weeks. You know, from a father uh, who pursued justice for uh, his family, he became this uh, figure who could bring hundreds of thousands of people to streets around the world. You know, from like Sydney to San Francisco and anywhere, anywhere in between. Um, yeah, so uh, this is what happened, you know, uh, pretty much overnight, he was recognized as a political leader, as a figure, you know, as a viable alternative uh, to the system in Iran. And, and many people, you know, were listening to him and, you know, respecting him and, you know, were waiting for him to do something big. So this is September, October 2022. And one of the first sort of responses outside of the country was a major rally around the UN when the Iranian president um, was coming to address the General Assembly. And you talk about attending that protest yourself and about seeing, you know, you think virtually every, you know, you live in the, in the New York area and virtually every diasporic Iranian that, that, that you knew from, from the area was there. Um, and it's an enormous rally. And, and then there is Hamad Ismailian, a guy who 20 years ago you knew in Tehran as a, as a writer of literary short stories, standing up and, and, and speaking to this enormous kind of unified crowd. And uh, what did you think at that moment? Well, it was a really uh, cathartic and memorable event. Because as I said, the, the diaspora is very disorganized. And the, the reason for this lack of organization is uh, there are very, very old, deep grudges, uh, you know, from, like, from the political past. Uh, people who are on the left, uh, they never forgave like the reformists or really anyone who uh, worked with the regime the early years of the revolution. And, and you know, uh, people who are like monarchists and uh, 
you know, devoted to the son of uh, the ousted Shah uh, Reza Pahlavi, who lives in the U.S. They, you know, they 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 don't give time of the day to like the leftists or or you know any kind of religious figure because they uh, they find them responsible for the revolution. So there are and you know, mutual anger and hatred and all of these grudges are very deep. And they uh, keep people from kind of working together, even though they all have the same cause, you know, to, to various degrees. But they can't really, they haven't been able to work together uh, and overcome uh, those, you know, deep-seated uh, issues. But then, uh, and I personally, I never thought I would see a day, uh, where, you know, when uh, those people can't actually come together and do something, you know, uh, stand shoulder shoulder in a protest, uh, shouting the same thing. I, I never thought I would you know, live long enough to see that day. But in front of the UN on that day, uh, it, it did happen. You know, I turned onto 47th Street uh, and I was walking uh, down towards the UN. Uh, you know, there were like the Mujahideen stands on this side where with the images of uh, the, you know their the prisoners who were executed in, in 1987 then there were uh, other leftists on the other side of the street you know they were like monarchists with their you know uh, lion and sun flag wandering around uh, I saw uh, figures from like the reformist government of Mohammed Khatami who were kind of close to the president uh, at the time, but you know, they all, uh, they were like journalists and politicians and so on. They all ended up in exile uh, for a variety of reasons, all of them political. They were there and they were like artists and I don't know, everybody, uh, all walks of life, all stripes. Uh, you know, uh, people, uh, again, uh, I never thought uh, I would see in the same space. Uh, they were there, you know, they were together and they were kind of uh, shouting the same thing. And yeah, in, was in, in this context, uh, Hamed gave a speech and Nasir Alinejad gave a speech. So when I saw that, I, I realized this is different, you know, uh, that uh, this is uh, for, for the first time uh, we are seeing a, a coalescence of all, the, all these forces that had never come together before. Uh, that's why I thought, you know, based on that observation and, and the news we were receiving from Iran that uh, we were on the cusp of something different, you know, this, this might be uh, grounds for real change. But that, uh, that turned out not to be the case. Sadly, yeah. I suppose now, since you say that, rather than going beat by beat over the next several months, we could just, we do know now we're a year later, roughly, and the protests within the country have died down. The, the, the protests outside of the country have, have died down. The regime is still in place, of course. And I wonder if maybe you could just tell us where you see things standing now. Well, it's, a, it's depression. It's very severe collective depression inside and outside Iran. Inside, obviously, compounded by economic problems uh, and uh, all, all the other issues that have always been there. Uh, you know, it's it's not the first time. This this was the probably the biggest movement uh, in my lifetime. But it was not the first time. You know, 2009, 2018, 2016. Before that, even 1999, on a smaller scale, uh, we had these uprisings, which happened with a lot of energy. It was like a release of a kind of a huge amount of pent up energy and rage. 
into public space. And so we had, we saw, we witnessed all of those protests and, and kind of clashes with the regime and so on. But then, you know, the, the thing about the government in Iran is that they have really mastered uh, the art, if you can call it the art, the art of uh, containing uh, movements and uprisings and uh, yeah, any any kind of a revolutionary mass uh, protest. They're they're really good at that. You know, they're not good at much else, but they do that very well. And you know, uh, even though, as I said, in, in terms of scale. This round of protests was, was huge. Uh, it was all over the country, you know, from like west to east, south to north. Uh, hundreds of towns were involved. And so it took a lot of resources and organization uh, from the government to contain that. But they, they, they did it, you know, in retrospect quite effectively. Um, so, and as they did, uh, you know, in, in, in previous uprisings. So the thing, the pattern uh, is that after uh, you have an uprising like that, you have this uh, colossal uh, release of energy, then things uh, go cold for a while, for at least a couple of years. And, uh, you know, collective depression sets in. Uh, people go back to their little bubbles. You know, these, all of these old fights came up, uh, start kind of, you know, pointing fingers, blaming uh each other uh and so there is like a period of uh you know uh post-mortem debate uh along with uh yeah i don't know uh, uh the depression and inaction and passivity uh so this will go on if the, if the parent uh parent, if the parent uh is to hold this time around as well i think we will have a couple of years of uh kind of quiet uh, with things bubbling under the surface, and then they will erupt again, uh, maybe a couple of years, a few years from now. I mean, it's impossible to predict, obviously, but it will, you know, because uh, there there's no other way to releasing it. Uh, now, is there any guarantee that the next round of protests would, uh, I don't know, bring about any meaningful change? Um, I don't know. Nobody can tell, but. We have been stuck in this cycle, this, this pattern for, for decades now, and I, I don't see any way out of it at the moment. This piece is, is as I said, to a great deal a piece about Hamed Ismailian, but it is also in part a piece about your collective generation and about the expatriate experience and about yourself and also about artists, Iranian artists, writers of, of, of your generation. And so I wanted to, to end here. One of the things that th this whole issue of our magazine is sort of about, besides actually being about members of, of this generation from various perspectives, is about the question of the relationship between art and politics. And uh, you, you spoke about how, given what happened to Ismailian's wife and daughter, he, he really didn't have any choice mm -hmm. about whether to really shift his focus uh, away from his writing largely towards political action. You have, after you left Iran, first to get a PhD in Australia, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes, you made it. You made a decision to to start writing. You'd already, you know, written many books and had a regular newspaper column. You had a well-established career in Iran, but you made a decision to start writing in English. Um, and you've been living in the United States for some time now. And and um, you uh, 
write fiction, uh, English language fiction. And I, I wonder what you see, if, if any, your role as a writer being in this situation that um, Iran is in and um, uh, how being, you know, having had this experience that, that parallels in certain ways Ismailian's experience without that huge life-altering event, um, how all that comes to bear on the way you approach your work as a writer? Well, the way I look at it is that, uh, in my opinion, the story of the post-revolutionary Iran in, in English, or any language really, has, hasn't been told at all in, in literature, in fiction in particular. You know, the problem is that uh, the way out, out of Iran has been pretty much one way, uh, you know, kind of a one way road. People who left, many of them never, uh, ne never went back. So, you know, the thing that happens is that you have like a massive uh, population of, you know, Iranian diaspora in the U.S. And there's a lot of writers uh, among them, too. Uh, but many of those writers are the children of those immigrants. And because their parents never traveled back, they never traveled back either. You know, maybe just a few of them uh, spent some brief periods of time, as, as, as far as I know, uh, in Iran. But, you know, uh, as far as I know, none of them really spent more than a couple of years combined over the last uh, 40 years in the country. Because it's, I mean, not, not, not their fault. It's, it's just, you know, it's, logistically, it's very difficult to go back and live there if you grow up in the U.S. So uh, they, uh, you know, uh, the country they write about, uh, they experience from distance, uh, maybe through their family, you know, through their parents or, or through those visits. Uh, you know, many of them uh, are not fluent in, in Persian and, and for a country like Iran, which, is, which has been pretty uh, circumscribed uh, and uh, isolated over the last 45 years. If you don't know the language, you're going to miss a lot. On the other side, uh, the people who grew up in Iran, and there were writers, people like me, uh, you know, uh, until I was like 30 years old, we just couldn't tell our stories because of the censorship, you know, had such a stranglehold uh, there. And uh, we couldn't really write what we wanted to write. So inside Iran, those stories uh, were not told either. So the way i kind of regard myself is that i you know what the, like the really strange uh, turns of turns and uh, twists and uh, events in my life and it's a kind of kind of an unusual journey i've ended up in this place as a writer who writes in english and grew up there uh, so i i think i know around pretty well you know i lived there uh, the first 30 years of my life you know as you mentioned i wrote books and was uh, was a kind of an active journalist and witnessed, you know, a lot of uh, major events firsthand, you know, was involved in all of them while I was uh, living there. Um, but I couldn't tell those stories while I was there. Uh, now that I'm outside Iran and I'm uh, writing, uh, you know, in English and publishing here, I have the freedom to tell what I want to tell, you know, to tell the stories that I think are, are left untold and unknown. Uh, while having, uh, you know, kind of carrying that knowledge, right, the, the life that I had still, you know, in my chest and, and in, in my mind. And uh, so, yeah, this is going to be, I think, uh, this is like the life mission, basically, of uh, 
defined for myself uh, that you know I want to uh, tell the, the the story of Iran after the revolution the way I understand it and I experienced it, especially parts of it uh, that have never been told, which is almost all of it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I I um I, I mean it's a great it's a it's an amazing remarkable project to have, and I want to I want to recommend to listeners to start by reading this piece and then um absolutely to go on to your your first english language novel then the fish swallowed him which i think is a is a wonderful piece of work and um thank you very much amir thanks chris thanks for having me you've been listening to the harper's magazine podcast the music is cut and shoot by febrifuge Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.